to get up and do my thing. I want to get into it, man, you know. Like, I, you know I'm the man, don't you? Can I count it off? One, two, three, four. You're listening to the Church Politics Podcast with Michael Ware and Justin Gibbony, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a Christian worldview. Transcend partisanship and political ideology with us as we seek true discipleship in the public square. This is the Church Politics Podcast with Michael Ware and Justin Gibney, uh, brought to you by the Ann Campaign. Uh, Justin, how are you? I'm doing well, brother. Had a pretty good weekend. Uh, really excited, as you know, about the Prayer and Action Justice Initiative that we are a part of with some other faith organizations. We recently sent a letter to Congress telling them that they need to get some uh, nonpartisan police reform legislation done ASAP. Uh, but just excited about the energy behind this this movement and and how you know Christians are coming together to get something done, not just to talk about it. So I'm I'm in I'm in good space right now. Yeah, it's been it's been really encouraging. Folks can go to prayerandactioncoalition.org uh, to learn more about that. Sign the petition. Uh, and yeah, it's been a been a great thing to to see. Churches helping churches is also a part of that. And and again, folks can go to. Uh, the website prayerandactioncoalition.org just to uh, just to get fully up to speed on the initiative. We we do have as as per usual quite a bit to get into. I mean we're we're doing this episode at the tail end of two of our two political conventions uh, that send us off into the general election. So both parties now officially have their nominated uh, tickets and. I spent uh, quite a bit of time watching both the Democratic convention, the Republican convention, uh, and it was like it, it was something else to get four days of concentrated programming about Joe Biden from the Democrats, and then largely to get the same <laughs> uh, for uh, oh, the week later with Republicans, only with a very different <laughs> vision of who Joe Biden is. You know, we have a presidential contest with two people who have been in the public eye for 40 years, uh, 50 years. And so you'd think that uh, there's only so much, you know, reframing that could happen, but I, I do think both parties had had their shot at it. Justin, what did you think of how the Democrats and the Republicans tried to uh, frame and position? Uh, let's talk specifically about Joe Biden uh, for the upcoming general. Yeah, I mean, it, it's very clear that both uh, parties seem to think this is maybe about whether Biden is palatable or not, right? Um, and so really they both came out and tried to, after all these years that he's been in office, really tried to paint a picture of Joe Biden to, to give people an understanding of who he really was. When you look at what the DNC did, they very much painted Biden as a man of the people, uh, who has overcome a lot of personal tragedy. I don't think uh, anyone can disagree with that. And really someone who had, who has the common touch and the ability to work with others to get things done, even across the aisle. Uh, a man of faith and principle who served the people and wouldn't be steered to the extremes. And I think there was extra effort to show, no, Joe Biden is Joe Biden and he's going to be Joe Biden afterwards. Um, and you even have people like former Republican governor, uh, the former Republican governor of Ohio, uh, John Kasich, who said the following. And he gave a speech at the DNC, not the RNC, the Democratic National Convention. And he said this. He said, I'm sure there are Republicans and independents 
who couldn't imagine crossing over to support a Democrat. Uh, they fear Joe may turn sharp left and leave them behind. I don't believe that because I know the measure of the man, uh, that he's reasonable, faithful, respectful. And, you know, no one pushes Joe around. And so that was the narrative that we got from the DNC very deliberately trying to address the idea that he's just going to go along with some of the folks on the on the far left. Obviously, uh, the RNC had a very different storyline when it came to Biden. It was that Biden is weak, that he's a has been liberal with diminished capacities uh, whose administration will very quickly be controlled by the most liberal voices or progressive voices in his party. Uh, the far left, uh, as they would say, uh, will have free reign in the Biden administration. And that was really the story that Trump and uh, the other Republicans who spoke at the RNC stuck with. So these are two very different versions of Joe Biden that were being presented. Uh, and I think we all have to ask ourselves what's true and and what, you know, should we be, you know, what's true and positive and what should we be concerned with? Personally, um, I do think that Biden's tendency is to be a uniter. I think it's hard to look at his history, at most of uh, the rhetoric he's used and say that he's a divisive figure. That's just a hard uh, case to make. Now, there may be statements here and there that he said where that they can pull out of the thousands of statements he's ever made that maybe didn't fit that perfectly. But generally, it's hard to make him into somebody that's divisive. However, the thing that I'm worried about is that is if he has the energy and the fortitude to hold the far left at bay. Um, Honestly, because all the energy in the party is on the far left. Um, and during now, I will say that during the primary, he did push back. And I think the electorate appreciated. And that's part of the reason that he won, that he didn't go all the way uh, to the left. Yet and still, you know, uh, in, in past years on issues like abortion, on issues like religious liberty, uh, he hasn't necessarily stuck with his, his convictions. He hasn't fully stood up for people of faith or the unborn in ways that he you would thought he you would have thought he would based on what he was saying his convictions were. Uh, so there's a legitimate reason to be very concerned. Uh, you know, Michael, uh, better than I, that the presidency is an institution. So unless he and his core advisors are very deliberate about surrounding him with folks who share the same more balanced convictions, uh, a Biden administration could go left pretty quickly. Uh, and, and from my vantage point, which is a little further away, it's hard to tell how many of those kinds of people, right, those more folks with more balanced convictions, more centrists are even available in the progressive in the in progressive D.C. consultant and professional class. You know, early on in Biden's campaign internally, it seemed that he was having trouble pushing back against staffers who were out of step with his persona. Uh, who were out of step with his mode of operation that wanted to do things differently and were getting putting messages out there that didn't represent who some people would say that he was. I think there's also a reasonable question as to whether Kamala Harris will be committed to taking a strong but more centrist posture. Uh, she's very talented. I mean, if you look at how she's uh, risen up, there's no doubt about that. Uh, but I've been very uh, you know clear about the fact that I, I wasn't very uh, impressed with her her campaign. I don't think that her campaign did her justice. It seemed that it was overly influenced kind of by the cool kids on leftist Twitter. And she made a lot of unforced errors because of that. Uh, she came across sometimes as very disingenuous uh, to a lot of people in my community because she was, it seems, trying to keep up with trending Twitter. Uh, you know, the whole thing about and this isn't about policy, but it speaks to what you're willing to do. 
the whole thing about bragging about smoking weed in college while listening to Tupac and come to find out Tupac hadn't even emerged in the rap game yet. And so it was just a bad look. She And then I think the other thing you have to point out, she did very awkwardly adopt many leftward policies. And that's what some people are worried about. So the question boils down for me, boils down to this, Michael. Will Biden and Harris convince the American people or even try to convince the convince the American people that they're strong enough to push back against what some of the folks on the far left are doing? Or will they be afraid to kind of push back because they don't want a rebellion on the left? Right. How much will they appease uh, that side of the conversation? And I think this is why anyone who is likely to vote for Biden needs to be more than just, you know, they need to do more than just talk about how they love him and hate Trump. Right. They need to let him know that there's an expectation that he'll check the far right and the far left. He can't be hesitant or afraid to to tell some of the loudest voices in his party. No. Tell them no on things like the New Green Deal. Tell them no on all these leftward policies that just don't have the support of the American people. Um, And if they're not willing to do that, they're going to run into trouble and they deserve to run into trouble. So we'll, we'll see what happens. But those that's how I saw the picture painted. And those are some of the concerns that that I have. Um, coming from my perspective, I think you're right. I mean, so in terms of how the uh, how he was he was painted and characterized, I mean, I was struck by how sort of uh, emotion laden the Democratic convention was. Uh, I mean, I think we got through the entire like first night of the convention, and I don't know if I heard about like a single policy, <laughs> like that entire night. Uh, it was, it was very much biographical, very much sort of the, you know, kind of America we want to live in kind of, uh, uh, kind of talk without, without a ton of substance. I do think there, there are some, some reasons for that. I mean, I think this, this president, uh, kind of opens the, the door to having sort of a discussion about more, you know, fundamental sort of, uh, uh, characteristics, you know, on the, on the idea of whether, you know, the Republican convention, you know, Biden's a, a, a puppet. He won't stand up to the left. I mean, I think you pointed out and the thing that, you know, sits with me quite a bit is, you know, we went through what uh, a year and a half of a presidential primary in which he did just that, <laughs> you know, like he he said no on Medicare for all. He said no on Green New Deal. He said no on sort of a number of things that the far left wanted, whether it was Julian Castro pressing him on something or Elizabeth Warren, kind of the argument about sort of vitality, whether he has the personal, the energy to push back uh, on the far left isn't something I'm I'm necessarily concerned about. Now, I think what you did touch on was this idea that about personnel. And I think especially when you get to like the mid-level, that's key, which is now administrations are staffed by the people who work on campaigns to a significant extent. This isn't this isn't total. This isn't near total, but it, it's true to a significant extent. The administrations are staffed by the, those who work on campaigns. At the senior level, I think Biden's going to be okay. He has people like Bruce Reed, who was the the founder of the DLC, which was sort of the moderate movement in the Democratic Party in the nineties. He's surrounded by people like Mike Donilon. Uh, who is someone who 
really understands the place of religious institutions in the country. Ted Kaufman, who was Biden's chief of staff for uh, a long time, is is by Biden's side. And then his sister, Valerie, who's been sort of with him through again since the since the 80s since the 70s and so i'm i'm encouraged by the fact that you know unlike hillary clinton who when she ran in 2016 she kind of got rid of all of her all a lot of the people who had been with her for a long time and he thought well what's going on here uh, biden has, has kept a, a lot of his team in place this is especially true on the national security side but it it also holds to the domestic policy the domestic policy side. Let me say one more thing here about Biden, which I, I think the other thing that's been said about him that is generally true is he is someone who is attentive to sort of where people are and where the party is. I think the observation has been made. He's been someone who's found himself consistently in the middle of the Democratic Party, no matter where it was. Now, of course, like the critique of that could be like, this is a this is a guy who when political circumstances change, change he, he, he changes to accommodate that. I, I think you look at Biden's career, I think there have been some clear lines. I think it's also clear that, yeah, he's attentive to sort of the political moment. The, the question is, what happens when the political moment sort of changes? Where does he draw those red lines? I do think with the way this campaign is going, and we're going to talk about it in the next segment, uh, I do think there's going to be an opportunity for him to do some of that line drawing on uh, policing issues, but also more broadly, Donald Trump and the Republicans are going to close this campaign over the next 10 weeks by arguing exactly this, by trying to hang around Biden's neck everything that the far left does. And right, it's important to note, like, they're not just talking about the far left as in like far left democratic politicians. It's like if 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 someone out there, if, if there's a poster on a message board <laughs> from, uh, quote unquote, the far left, they're going to say it's Biden's responsibility. Uh, and so, you know, I, I, I do think he's going to have to speak really clearly into that it's why I'm so glad you raised up uh, Kasich's remarks, which is uh, a Kasich sort of comment that he was uh, convinced that Biden wouldn't wouldn't swing hard left after winning. Uh, I think Kasich knew where the Republicans were going to take this election before many Democrats. Uh, before many Democrats did, but we'll we'll be able to talk about that in the next segment. But a- a- anything else you want to say to close close this out? Yeah, just two questions. Um, how serious should folks take his flip flop on the Hyde Amendment, which obviously has to deal with abortion? I mean that that is a that's telling. Um, yeah, and is it possible that the DNC was light on policy because <laughs> when they come out with policy? That's going to inflame the left, right? Either they're going to go along with the left or they're going to inflame the left. And at some point, they're going to have to take that stand. So I just want to kind of throw that out there. What are your thoughts? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, right. So the uh, on the second question, you know, Democrats have a platform, unlike the Republicans this year. And so, you know, there's the, the nominee isn't beholden to that platform. The nominee doesn't have to take the position of that platform. But but that's, you know, so there's I think it's 
uh, I think it's uh, over a hundred pages. Uh, the, the platform this year, there, there's there, there's plenty that the that the party has sort of uh, put on paper regarding its policies. Uh, I I do think you know the point of a you know I saw some people saying you know that both conventions had you know some propaganda involved, and I w- I was like. No, co- conventions are completely propaganda. Like they're nothing but propaganda. Uh, uh, and so, you know, I do think the Democratic Convention was trying to cast as broad a net as possible without and turning off as few voters as possible. And, and so, yeah, I mean, I think that's certainly that's certainly like a like like a piece of that. But but I, I think that's to some extent just you know sort of political. Uh, political communication on the first piece. Um, and, you know, we talked about this when it first happened, I think got to be uh, really concerned about Hyde. If you watch Biden's sort of statements, it, he was, uh, and I'm not saying this to defend him, but sort of in, as indicative of sort of what, what the circumstances were. Uh, he was uh, not sort of like a full throated, uh, uh, flip. There were all kinds of contingencies in there. Uh, and, uh, uh, Chris Coons came on the Faith 2020 podcast and, uh, expressed sort of his concerns with, uh, basically the explanation Coons gave was that the, uh, Hyde Amendment was part of a, an understanding in the Senate that Title 10 funding gets protected. And the Hyde Amendment stays in place when the Republicans sort of went after Title 10 sort of uh, for the hard pro-choice side. They just could no longer sort of justify Hyde and sort of the deal blew up. Um, I'm interested, you know, when Biden flipped on Hyde, he said that it was because when Republicans were and this is paraphrasing, but he said, you know, it's like when. Uh, he said it was because when Republicans are threatening, you know, funding for women's health, you know, we we can't, you know, l- leave anything off the table, or you know, we need to make sure that uh, funding is is uh, you know provided for the full range of euphemism, euphemism, euphemism. What, what's interesting there is how he predicated it. Uh, t- to me, is that he predicated it on Republicans having control, and so the the interesting door there is if Democrats, if the power changes, how does that calculus change? But yeah, I'm, I'm very concerned about Hyde. Uh, you read some of the reporting and it, it is kind of like the, the the scenario that folks are worried about, which is like Simone Sanders sitting him down and telling him t- telling him what's what. <laughs> and, and so yeah, it's, it's very concerning. Uh, yeah, I, I, I've said, Justin, like there's going to be a moment in this campaign where a reporter or during the debate, Biden's going to be confronted about the fact that as late as 2015, he was expressing his support for Hyde. In his book in 2007, Biden talked about how he stayed middle of the, you know, quote unquote, middle of the road on the abortion issue uh, for, you know, his, at that point, his entire career. Um, And he's going to have to answer for why he's changed. I mean, he he gave one of the most compelling 
he, he gave an answer on Hyde that is very hard to wriggle out of, which is when he was asked about Hyde, when he still supported Hyde, which, which again, for, for those who, uh, the Hyde Amendment bans federal funding for abortion. When he was asked about it in the past, he said, I, I personally oppose abortion, but I don't think the government should be imposing my view. And we could talk about that. But he said, I don't think the government should be imposing my view on abortion on, 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 uh, uh, on, on women. Uh, but he said in the same way, uh, for taxpayer funds to go towards abortion is an imposition of another kind. And so I support banning federal funds going to abortion. I mean, that's a pretty like, that's a pretty like seal proof argument in support of Hyde. And and he's, he's going to have to answer for the flip. Yeah. I mean, that's my point of view. Look, Biden and Coons, if you ask me, they can rationalize it all they want. They can candy coat all the sugar coat it all they want. That's a, that's a flip flop. Uh, they, it seems to me that they caved in for, to they caved in uh, to the pressure coming from the left. Uh, a lot of these kind of pro-choice organizations, and you can say a whole bunch of stuff. I mean, you got writers and people who tell you exactly what to say to soften the blow, but that was a cave. And Hyde is something that you can take off the table in negotiations. You always take things that are principled matters off the table if that's what you need to do. You don't just keep something on the table that you have no intent on taking off. Number two, I don't feel more comfortable that, you know, the Democrats are in office now. Hyde is more likely to stay. No, it's more likely to go because you don't have that same pushback, especially if the Senate changes. So they can say all that. I mean, it's certainly one of those things that I see from them as a flip flop. I think it was very weak. And to your point, they're going to have to answer for that. I don't I don't give them any benefit of, of the doubt on that. It looks like they just caved to me. Yeah. And it's uh, I mean, th- that's absolutely what it was. <laughs> uh, and. You know, it's it's why, you know, Biden's going to have to answer on that. He's going to have to answer it, to to my reading of all the reporting on the primary and sort of he hasn't rejected his previous support for restrictions on late term abortion. They're they're going to have to reaffirm that position or say that that's not our position anymore. Um, uh, before this thing is out, because you have President Trump uh, saying in prime tri- prime time addresses that uh, that Biden supports abortion up till birth. I like I, I don't think that's something that you could let stand for for uh, for you know the nine remaining weeks of the campaign. So it, it's it, it's going to be real. This is this conversation has obviously been focused. On a very particular set of issues, which we're going to talk about after the break, and that is the conversation around protests and what's happening in the streets of uh, American cities and what's happening in law enforcement and criminal justice. This is the Church Politics Podcast. All right, we're back. This is the Church Politics Podcast. And uh, Justin, just over the last uh, few days uh, here, we have seen murders in the context of these protests. I want to be careful with how we describe 
um, you know, obviously police are still saying they're collecting information. There, there is no authoritative account that I'm seeing. So th- there have even been some making distinguish, uh, making comments that, well, we don't know who involved was actually protesting, etc. It, it's clear that these happen within the context of uh, the, the the protests, though, and, and that's in Kenosha. Uh, we had a 17 year old who was on the ground uh, in Kenosha, and uh, first of all, as a 17 year old, he's not permitted to uh, to to possess firearms in the first place. Um, but he, uh, uh, he ended up, uh, killing, uh, two, two people. Um, and then, and, and there, there's some more color we could put around, put around that, but, but just to sort of kick off the conversation. And then in Portland, uh, there was a, uh, man who was, uh, part of Patriot Prayer, which the New York Times describes as a far right group based in the Portland area that has clashed with protesters in the past. The group says it seeks to combat corruption, big government, and tyranny using God for strength and the power of love. Uh, and a man affiliated with that group was uh, shot and killed uh, in Portland. Justin, I mean, so look, as we've talked about, Toxic polarization is toxic because we have seen the numbers actually ex, uh, get to the point where you have significant portions of Americans who quite literally uh, seem to not mind if their political opponents died. And I've been in, I mean, I think we've both been in uh, meetings with folks who are experts on polarization. And I'm thinking of one person in particular. I'm thinking of uh, our friend Andrew uh, Hanauer over at One America, who uh, I, I remember distinctly saying, well, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but but the idea came across to me that folks were very concerned. That it's only a matter of time before this sort of political animosity that's expressed on message boards and expressed uh, on talk radio and that kind of thing before that expresses itself in actual physical uh, violence. Is is that what we're seeing here or are we trying too hard to fit the, these these incidents into, uh, into a certain paradigm? No, I think that's it. Uh, I think people are saying, look, if we have to take the other side out to uh, make this thing work or to get what we want, then that's what we'll do. Uh, and I think that's exactly what we're seeing uh, on, on both sides of that conversation. I would also mention that in Minneapolis, a riot started based on false information about a police shooting. It was actually a su- suicide, uh, which is, you know, um, why we should probably slow down on, on telling people to rush to, to judgment uh, before we even really know what's happening. Right. You have people rioting and they don't even know what, what really happened. It's just really sad. So, listen, th- this is this is what I'm thinking. Unless we get some real uh, nonpartisan leadership on both sides, we're on the verge of really a self-destructive moment uh, based on really, I think on, on the, uh, what you just, what you just said. I think that's right. Um, if Republicans are going to continue to dismiss Trump's behavior because progressives are so bad that they can't fathom telling him to grow up, uh, then we're in trouble. 
Um, and if Democrats are going to continue to dismiss what's happening in places like Portland uh, because Trump is so bad, then this violence is really only a preview. Uh, it's, it's a foretaste of what the future has in store for this country. It's not going to get better unless we have leaders who are willing to step up and not secretly cheer these folks on in hopes that they'll destroy your opposition through their chaos. I think that's complicity. I think it's completely irresponsible, but that's what you're seeing happen to some extent. Not everybody, but you're seeing that to some extent. You know, we talk about how the public discourse is controlled by two extremes, right? These devoted conservatives and these progressive activists. And both those two extremes have failed to call out what's going on on their side, completely failed to call it out. All you hear is deflection. You hear defensive, defense, uh, d- defenses, uh, whataboutism. So every time you say something to, to a partisan about what happened in Portland or what happened in uh, Kenosha, oh, what about the other side? Look at what they're doing. No one ever answers the question and tries to come up with a solution. You just point to the other side. Um, and I'll be honest, man. So you have these two sides, devoted conservatives and progressive activists, and then you have the exhausted majority in the middle, right? Uh, and honestly, the exhausted majority has to catch a second win. Uh, we have to stop feeling sorry for ourselves because we are not innocent bystanders who deserve to be pitied. We're empowered citizens with agency who really have allowed this to happen to our country to some extent, right? Uh, we failed to organize uh, uh, sufficiently. We failed to articulate a more sense, a sensible case and to push back because in many times, in many instances, we just don't want to be bothered. Uh, but we have to step it up and really get out there and, and put an end to this and let our leaders know that this has to stop. I just watched a video uh, before uh, the, the pod, before we started the podcast of Portland's mayor, Ted Wheeler, basically giving a speech, blaming all the violence and the murder that just happened in his city. Right. Blaming all of that on Trump and absolving himself. Now, I'll be the first to say that we know Trump has done nothing to heal the divides that are going on in Portland or anywhere else. But for an executive on the ground who, by the way, said that he didn't want any federal help. Now, we're not saying that Trump's help would have been perfect or anything like that. But you said you didn't want any federal help for you to blame that completely on someone else is shameful. Mayor Wheeler, this one, you know, this stuff is on you. You have to do something about it. You can't be creating these uh, sovereign zones and all this. And then something bad happens and you blame it on somebody else. You have not adequately adequately dealt with this. But that speech is a microcosm of American politics. When it is clear to any objective observer that you as an executive have messed up, all you have to do is point to the other side and blame it on them. And our politics are so opposition-centered that we fall for it every time. Uh, I think you did see, thank God, an an opposite uh, response, which came from Denver's mayor, Michael Hancock, within the last few weeks. And he kind of did the opposite. He said, look, I'm calling the rioters out. I'm calling the rioters out because most of y'all aren't from my community. Y'all don't represent the black community and y'all are running our uh, city into the ground. And this has to stop now. And if it doesn't stop now, you're going to jail. You can't continually allow people to burn stuff down, to break into all these businesses, shut these businesses down and really do nothing. You can't you can't do that. You can't govern that way. Um, And so I'll say this, just going back to the last conversation, my understanding is that Biden is going to speak on this. And I think when he speaks on this violence, he needs to do more than simply condemn the violence. I don't think that's much to ask. I don't think that's hardly anything. So I think that's a very low standard just to say, hey, 
we don't like violence. Violence is bad. <laughs> right. He needs to take a page really from uh, from Mayor Hancock's book and challenge these state and local ex- uh, executives to put an end to the violence. And in doing that, he needs to provide them with a framework for how to do so, because they don't obviously don't know how to do it. It's clear that these local leaders, uh, many of them state Democratic lead Democrat leaders, uh, need some real leadership. And if he, you know, anything else is just too little, right? We're not going to allow you to tear up these neighborhoods, then go off to back to the suburbs after you tore them up, and the people are, who are from those communities still have to live there. And somebody has to stand up for the people in these communities. You can't be trying to be cool like we talked about a few weeks ago with with all these, you know, the, the activists who are acting badly. We, we know they're ones that who are doing well. You cannot try to be cool with them. Right. They need to know that once something gets violent, it's over. So you can protest. You can do what you need to do. Once something starts burning, once people start breaking into businesses, it's over. We're not we're done for, for that for the time being. And that needs to be the conversation that's had. And I really think Biden needs to do that. He needs to do more than just condemn the violence. I think that's the least he can do. Now, I'll say this. Trump needs to do something similar, um, but we won't hold our breath for that to happen. He needs to speak up and be a leader for some of these conservative folks who are not stepping up and saying, hey, man, you don't go across state lines with a rifle to shoot at people. Right. Somebody needs to say that. And and we'll just have to wait until we hear it. Yeah. uh, Justin. Uh, there's so much, so much there to unpack. Um, you know, it, it's, it seemed to me, I've been watching like the CNN coverage for the last, you know, two, three weeks. And then even going back to their coverage of Portland, you know, leading up to this, it just struck me as some of their anchors were like going out of their way to, 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 to say that what was happening on the screen was actually not what was happening. Uh, and you just thought, how how long is this gonna? <laughs> you get the sense that a lot of elite political people were like, "Hey, like this is this is working out. Like we're managing the narrative here, and we're 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 not doing what we heard about in our media literacy classes in undergrad, which was calling." protesters, rioters and and looters and that kind of thing. And like, we're, we're really, you know, on the right side of history on this one. So like, it's all manageable. And then as soon as CNN, which this just happened in like the last five, six days, like as soon as CNN saw, uh, started reporting like, oh, this could be a political problem for Democrats. That's when like people started getting nervous. But like, I, I hold to the, like, this has been happening for over and over again for 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 weeks, obviously not murders in the in uh, murders of protesters uh, in, in the street, but what we've seen sort of folks pushing up on police and and all all that kind of thing. I can't help but but notice Justin that a lot of the whether it's Mayor Bottoms in Atlanta, Mayor Han- Hancock in Denver, it, it's it seems like some of the black executives feel a lot more confident to be able to call what it is that they're seeing with their eyes than uh, than frankly some some of these uh, progressive mayors in places like Portland uh, how do you account for that do 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 you, do you do you think there's a yeah how, how do you account for that is that what you're seeing too yeah, I, I do see some of that. Um, I, I see s- some uh, African-American mayors who are willing to say, hey, this does not represent our community. 
And some white mayors in some of these progressive cities are not willing to say that. But let me say this. If you're unwilling to call out violence, then you're not fit to govern. So, I, I, you know, I don't I don't give Ted Wheeler. I mean, I don't know anyone who's done a worse job in this situation and put people in these communities at risk because you didn't want to say what you were supposed to say. And because the question is, why aren't they saying it? Because you want to be cool, right? You you don't want to go against the narrative that you're the bad guy fighting against the rioters. You have a job to do. Your job isn't to fit some narrative. And when you put the people of your city in danger because you don't want to do what you have to do, whether it's your political future or whatever, then you don't need to be in office. And for you to stand there when you're in that city every day, you're the one who got elected in that city. And to blame somebody else for, for what's going on in your city, things that you do have some control over is just cowardice. And he needs to yeah. step up. I, I agree. It may be easier for somebody from those communities to say something, but you're the mayor. You have to say something, whether there's a group who says that you can't talk about it or not. You were in that position. You took the job. Do your job. Um, and and just too many folks are not doing it. And uh, we somebody needs to say something. But I think you hit it on the head when you talk about the media. I mean, a lot of people don't even know about the killing in Portland. Right. It, it was not right. it was not reported in the same way that the killing in Kenosha was. And then you had uh, I, I, I don't know who it was, but it seems like whoever the killer was, was was someone it's, that was uh, affiliated with uh, Antifa. You know, those details aren't haven't come out yet. But what we do know is after the killing, there was somebody basically saying uh, giving a speech to the crowd, basically saying, hey, we're not afraid to take out the trash. We did what we had to do today. And that really wasn't publicized. Nobody saw that. But that's the attitude we're dealing with. And if we don't have leaders to shut that down, that aren't too progressive or too conservative to say that's ridiculous, then you get, you know, you get what you you ask for and you've put a lot of people in danger. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, uh, I, I do want to ask one one more question on this, which is I, th- I think, you know, s- some of these mayors are saying uh, and some of these governors are saying, well, you know, it, it looks like I have, you know, two bad options in front of me, which is uh, I could try and put a parameter around some of the rioting and, and, and looting, but but basically uh, allow it to like run out of steam or yeah, honestly, I don't know. I, I don't know what like the mayor of Portland has been thinking, but that that's what I think the idea is, which is like, let's just try and put something of a lid on it, but not sort of crack down or you know i think they look at what happened you know, what what happens when you know sort of militarized police clash up against these uh, uh, clash up against protesters and violence from law enforcement comes comes in to stop the rioting and they say well that's that's not a great thing to be a part of either certainly politically but then there are also like all kinds of ethical ways to look at that like like uh, are, are they stuck between a, a rock and a hard place? Uh, how, is, is there a way to peaceably stop people who are intent on burning up buildings and, you know, uh, committing violence against folks in the street? Look, what you're pointing out to me is that governing is hard. Governing is not easy. And I think most of the many of the choices that they make are two very tough choices you know, between two very tough uh, uh, issues. And here's what I would suggest communicate. Say, hey, I'm with you. I understand why you're protesting. You can protest as much as you want. As soon as things get violent, it's over. 
as soon as we start burning cars and doing, you know, and um, going into buildings and looting, it's over. I'm going to give the people who were peaceful a certain amount of time to get out of there. And everyone else is going to have to go to jail or going to have to face the consequences. There is no way to finesse to finesse that. But you <laughs> have to remember the people who are rioting are not the only people that you're governing. You're That's governing right. for the people who aren't there rioting, who have businesses, who work their whole life to create those businesses, people in those neighborhoods who have lived in those neighborhoods their whole life. And now they got to wake up in the morning and the whole neighborhood is torn to pieces. You have to think of those people, too. So I think you just have to communicate it and say, look, I'm going to let you do this. But here are the bounds. And if you're not right. willing to set those boundaries again, you're not fit to be an executive. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's let's go to our last break of the show. When we get back, we're going to talk about uh, the director of national intelligence is the decision to no longer do in-person election security briefings through the general election and, and what that means. This is the Church Politics Podcast. All right, we're back. This is the Church Politics Podcast. And at last uh, this last weekend, the national security uh, apparatus made the decision that there will, the, there will no longer be in-person briefings about election security and that these briefings will be written uh, instead. The explanation given has been uh, that they wanted to ensure clarity and consistency. Uh, and also it seems pretty clear that they want to avoid the politicization of these briefings in the closing months of the election. Now, Democrats have raised uh, concerns uh, that this will reduce the quality of the briefings, that it will, it, it will mean that sort of uh, these briefings will be uh, easier to ignore and that it could be a sign of letting our guard down uh, at precisely the time when we need to be most vigilant. Here's what I'd say. To the extent that a decision like this makes us weaker, the weakness, the, the, the root of the weakness, the source of the weakness to me is not in switching from verbal in person to written briefings. The root of the weakness is what we talked about in the last segment, which is that we have uh, our politics has devolved to the place where we're willing and able to make political use out of just about anything if it will help our partisan cause. Like it seems completely legitimate to me for the officer of the uh, for the office of the director of national intelligence to think, do you know what we've seen how this place. <laughs> Before we we can't trust uh, elected officials sort of view national security intelligence solely through the lens of it being national security intelligence. They're going to be if there's something here that will help their side win, they'll leak it, they'll use it, they'll misconstrue it, they'll twist it. It is right if it's written, it's more uh, easy to ignore. There's not the uh, the in person accountability that takes place. I mean, we've seen this administration in the past say, oh, well, you know, I, I never saw, you know, Trump has said, I never saw that 
piece of intelligence that never crossed my desk. Well, with an in-person, you, 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 you can't say that as easily. But the main thing that stuck out to me about this story, Justin, is just the fact that our own intelligence apparatus can very viably say we need to take precautions against our own officials weaponizing for political purposes, the intelligence we have to offer them. Uh, and, and that, that I mean, that sounds sadly right to me. Uh, but what's, what's, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I think this is an integrity problem on, on both sides, uh, a lack of credibility on both sides. I mean, these unauthorized disclosures, a.k.a. these leaks and the politicization of this type of information is just sad. The fact that somebody would be sworn in, would be representing the people and use something from these disclosures to to gain a foot, you know, to get a foot up in politics. It's, it's ridiculous. And this has happened way too much. I mean, something that the left and they're not the only folks that do it, but it's something you got to deal with. There have been leaked. There have been too much information that's been leaked and shouldn't have been. That is a matter of integrity. Uh, that's a matter of of taking, you know, your vows of office seriously. And, and some people just aren't doing that because it's all about the party victory. It's not necessarily about the, you know, putting the country in the in the best place. But there's I think there's an integrity issue on, on the other side, too, uh, which is no one trusts that you're not doing stuff like this uh, because you don't want to be transparent. Right. Um, and so some people are saying this is another mechanism of transparency that's being removed. And because there's a lack of integrity on the on, you know, in this administration, because they really do nothing to allay the concerns that Americans have about elections and voter rights. People are going to assume that this was done in bad faith. Right. And, and so and, and so it's hard to argue against that uh, because both sides don't seem to be committed to something bigger, which is the country more than the more than the partisanship. And, and I think that's what's that that's what marks this particular issue right now is just a lack of integrity. Uh, and somebody's got to step up and, and, and see the bigger picture and kind of put they even put their office on the line to, to represent something better than that's been than is being represented right now. And that's that's really all I have on that one. Look, we, 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 we know the, the, you know, the bipartisan commissions have made clear Russia interfered in 2016. That's no longer sort of something reasonable people can debate. We have no reason to think that there isn't going to be foreign interference in this election. Uh, I think you're absolutely right. There's a crisis of integrity and a crisis of trust where um, both with between the parties and then also between the government and the people that these sort of these sorts of things are only going to man, be manipulated for personal and political advantage, not addressed for uh, the common welfare. Th those kinds of concerns can be overblown in some instances and true in others. Uh, at the end of the day, it is the responsibility of uh, of our leaders to uh, to 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 restore that trust and. Um, that's not going to happen within uh, with nine weeks uh, out from an election, but it is going to be something for whoever wins in November to, to take on themselves. All right, Justin, I, I, I think that that just about does it for for this uh, for this episode. Anything you want to leave folks with? As I always say, Ann Kemp, there is a cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth 
to be loved by the world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ and Kemp. Until next time.